Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. in Acts chapter 14 today. If you want to take your Bible out and flip there, find it, locate that, look for it, Google it, whatever you need to do to get there, we'd love for you to follow along in Acts 14. And kind of as we do, I wanted to share with you a news story I saw uh, this week. I saw a news alert that broke uh, that looked uh, somewhat like, I think we've got a picture here. There we go. It looks like this. And you get these and they're horrifying, right? Like you get this and you see this, a catastrophic event has unfolded in Rockwood, Maine as a train transporting hazardous materials is derailed and subsequently caught fire. The situation's prompted the dispatch of multiple emergency crews, including hazmat to the scene, issues, uh, uh, there's all kinds of issues going along with this, but you see, uh, there's particularly alarming is its uh, proximity to a lake that provides water that people drink from later on. Any of us ever get nervous about contamination that's going to somehow infiltrate our bodies? Uh, now, if any of you read a book called White Noise that came out several years ago, kind of a famous book, kind of Don DeLillo wrote this book, and uh, it's, it's really a really well done book, but it actually follows this exact scenario. And so anytime I see something like this, my head immediately goes, airborne toxic event. And the thing, uh, the whole setup of this book called White Noise is really the, the white noise in our world that we are so fear-based and we're so distracted and we're so worried and consumed about negativity and bad things that could happen to us that an airborne toxic event happens when a train spills uh, chemicals into the sky and it comes on fire and goes up into the air. And so the entire uh, narrative of the book is uh, kind of this comical reaction to the both rational and irrational fears we have to the idea that we could be physically contaminated by something invisible that's out there somewhere that might become might come in here. Now, here's why I bring that up today, because I think, I think it's interesting that though we have these fears, which, I mean, to be fair, like they're probably legitimate, right? Fears that something would contaminate us physically, we rarely are fearful that something invisible out there would contaminate us spiritually. Uh, we rarely have the same kind of reaction to a spiritual contaminant, and yet there are settings and scenarios in a world where I think it would behoove us to put on a spiritual hazmat suit and try to protect us from all the stuff coming in from out there and infiltrating us in here. And so as we get into Acts 14, uh, it's going to be interesting to see kind of how this unpacks and kind of why I'm talking about this today. Now, here's the thing. I, I'm the last guy that would say we should, be, we should panic and create fear. And I'm definitely not trying to do that today. But I do think there are, there are some, there's something that um, Acts 14 is trying to show us about the fear of, of spiritual contamination that comes when we begin to doubt God and doubt his church. And there's groups and people and settings that begin to, to influence us in that way. So look at me at Acts 14. We're going to start in, chapter, in verse 1. It says, Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke 
in a way that a great, in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. This is Paul and Barnabas, two of the disciples of Jesus that have been sent out. We saw in Acts 13 last week that Paul preached his first sermon here. You get in for, uh, that we have recorded in verse in chapter 14. We're going to see that he's still preaching the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas go to a new city and they go to the Jewish synagogue. They speak the truth of God in a way that both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks believe the gospel, they believe the message in verse one. Look what happens in verse two and how long it takes for that to get, for fickle people to get distracted. Verse two says, but unbelieving Jews, those uh, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And then an interesting phrase, that they poisoned their mind against Saul and Barnabas and the message that they came to bring. Uh, it's, it's an interesting concept that Paul or that Luke is help, trying to help us understand or begin to see here in this passage. And what you have is this, when it says unbelieving Jews, it's not saying that these are irreligious people or these are people who don't, aren't interested in spiritual things. Actually, what he's saying is these are people who, uh, these are Jews who understood the Old Testament, but they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah that was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So they heard the message of Christ and they said, no, we don't believe Jesus is really the one sent by God to save the world. So they were, they, they were religious Jews, but they were those who rejected the work of Christ and what he had come to do. And so Paul and Barnabas now step into this and they begin to preach the gospel that Christ has come and he's the savior and he's the Lord and he's resurrected and he's the living king that we are called, that's ushering in the kingdom of God. And as people begin to believe this counter group begins to argue against them, and you see this split that takes place. And so what we're going to later says it says there's a schism, there's a division between people, those who listen to the message and those who reject the message. And I want to break down that phrase just a little bit, because what's fascinating to me about Acts 14, and really what we're going to see as we go through this whole chapter, is that just as it's possible for our souls or our minds to be poisoned, it's also possible for our souls or our minds to be strengthened. In fact, in verse 2, uh, we see that phrase, poison their minds against the brothers, right? In, Acts, uh, in the same chapter, if you go down to verse 22, if you look ahead just a little bit to the end of the chapter, we see a different phrase. It says that they, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now, in the two statements, this word mind or soul, it's actually the same root word. And so if you go back and you look at, at the Greek, instead of looking at your English translation, it's literally the same word that's there that's used for mind or soul. And what you do is based on the context of what's going on, you interpret it one way or the other. And so that word for mind or soul, suke, it really means, it has to do with the inner self, the, the person as, a, as an individual. And so it's looking at the internal part of who you are. So not the physicality of who you are, but that internal part of who you are that's at your core. Of, of your being. And so when it talks about your soul or your mind, it's really referring to the same thing. And it's speaking to you about this kind of inner realm of your thoughts and your feeling and your spirit, the most personal, vulnerable core of, your, of an individual. Uh, do you see what this is getting at? So what it's saying in verse two is that they're poisoning this inner being of, their, of, their, of who they are, their soul. But on verse 22, it says, but, but rather than being poisoned, you can also be strengthened in the inner being in your soul. And so what we begin to see in Acts 14 is this kind of spiritual tug of war that takes place between those who are seeking to poison or corrupt uh, the, the, their inner being and those who are seeking to build up and strengthen 
their inner being. Do you see how that works? Can I ask you a question? Do you ever feel that in your own life? Like as you walk through life, that there's, uh, that there's things that are trying to infiltrate your, your soul and steer it away from faith. And there's things that come in and try to undergird and, and lift you up to a greater faith. And th- that as you walk through life, there's kind of this tug of war that's going day by day, moment by moment in your being. Now here, as you look at this passage, it's, uh, you see this phrase of, of strengthening uh, and this phrase, this phrase of poisoning. It's interesting when it talks about poisoning, what it's saying is that you're trying to actually turn someone against, that, that you're actually trying to instill in them hostile feelings toward someone. And so when it says poisoning their minds against the brothers, what it's saying is these are people who were actively trying to instill in you feelings of hostility towards the other Christians. Um, have, you ever, have we ever seen anything like that in our world? Like if you, if you look at the history of the last 2,000 years as it's unfolded from the time of Jesus till now, have we ever seen a group or a setting or a situation where people were trying to instill in you a narrative or a story or an explanation that says you should not trust the church and the message about Christ that it brings? Now, to be fair, we've earned some of that, Right? When you look at some Christians, we've earned some of the criticism. We've earned some of those things, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone who they're, they're rejecting the message of Christ. And in so doing, they're saying, don't trust these people that are telling you about Jesus because they're gonna lead you astray. And so they're trying to actually poison your faith and cause you to feel hostile towards other Christians. It's interesting that they didn't just, they didn't just come in and say, hey, we'd like to have a logical conversation about the message in, in which, that you're presenting. Who is it that they're poisoning their minds against? The brothers. And it's almost, it's almost always true that, that, that we tend to make it personal. And so they, they say, if we don't trust the messengers, you'll never trust the message. And so if we can poison you and say, you should just run away from church completely, then you're not gonna listen to the message that created the church, which is the message about Christ and the gospel. And this is really what we see unfolding. Now, the other side of that to strengthen is to make something stronger in the sense that they're more firm in the faith, that they are unwavering in the faith, that they are steadfast and they're holding strong to the faith. And so if we can be poisoned and distracted and turned hostile to the faith, the opposite side of that, what we're gonna see as we get later is that the church was created in order to strengthen, build up and encourage us to hold steadfast to the truth of the faith. So as we see in Acts 14, what we're gonna see is how this thing kind of plays out. And friends, this passage is really highlighting what happens in our souls when we have different inputs, when there are different influences, when there are different voices that, have, uh, that, that we give ear to. Those tend to shape the way in which we feel about Christ and about being a part of his people. Do you, have, do you see that in your own experience? That, that you begin to listen to certain voices and you begin to give ear to them. And as you begin to foster and nurture them, that, that somehow you have fellowship with people that are critical of those things, that those thoughts become your thoughts and they become internalized in you. And there's nothing wrong with interacting with people, but there's something different when you begin to imbibe and enter into and entrust yourself to those kinds of thoughts. And so there's a danger that I think it's speaking us to, and it's gonna ultimately call us to move in a different direction, to, tr- to move into community and fellowship of the church that's going to strengthen your faith and build up your trust of Jesus. 
So this is what we're gonna look at today. Since our souls can be strengthened in faith or steered away from the faith, we need to decide where we're gonna turn for guidance, for instruction, for fellowship, and for care. And ultimately, we know that that's calling us to go to the church. You look at the story of Acts. The story of Acts is the unfolding of the early church. It's this new work that God has done as he's launching this thing called the church in every city. And what's happening in this scenario is Paul and Barnabas have gone from one city to another, and they're establishing a beachhead or an outpost for the gospel in that place. And as they do, they begin to, they begin to encounter some confrontation and some opposition. And this is the normal pattern we see as we walk through the book of Acts. And so Acts 14 shows us that in the face of fickle crowds, faithful disciples are going to run after Jesus and go towards him. So look at me at uh, verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4 it says, So Paul and Barnabas remained there a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and to Derbe, cities of uh, Lyconia, and to the, surrounding, to the surrounding country, and they continued to preach the gospel. So people were divided, but Paul and Barnabas stood firm. They continued preaching the gospel. And it's, it's always good to be on, on the side of the guy that, raises, that comes back from the dead. It's always good to be on a team with a guy who willingly laid down his life for you and then came back from the dead. Uh, that's, that's typically the side you want to be on. And so Paul and Barnabas are like, hey, we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay faithful. And they continued. It meant they remained. They stayed steadfast. They continued to preach what? It says the word of grace. You understand that the message, that our, our basic message, if you boil it down, is message of good news of God's grace, that God has forgiven you through the sacrifice of his son, and he's given you new life through the resurrection of his son. And so Paul and Barnabas are not wavering in what it is they believe, and they're continuing to press in and to announce this good news to the people. And yet there's this opposition that comes back against them to this message. Uh, this happens over and over in the book of Acts. Almost every time they move into a new city, you see this kind of division that takes place, some that believe and some that reject. Uh, friends, that's gonna be a normal occurrence, not just in the book of Acts, but in our lives. There are some that we encounter that are gonna trust the good news of Christ. And there's some that we encounter who are gonna say, I think you're crazy. And I don't believe that to be true. Paul and Barnabas experienced opposition. In fact, in this one chapter, uh, if, you, if we just read through it, here's what you would see about them, and aren't you glad you didn't live in that day? Uh, but they were lied about, they were abandoned, they were threatened, bullied, beaten, stoned. They were tried to stone once and it failed, so then they stoned him again and actually did stone Paul, and then they left him for dead outside the city. And it said that the disciples went out to check on Paul when he was done, thinking he was dead, and Paul just stood up. And so we're not sure exactly what went down there, but apparently they didn't, they didn't uh, finish the deal. And so Paul was, was stoned, but he didn't die from his experiences. So he got up, and what did Paul do? He's like, hey, let's go back and get some more. And he goes back in and begins to preach the gospel a little bit more. And we see this pattern happening throughout the book of Acts. Now, the other thing we see is that they're not alone in this task, right? Um, what is it that God does um, here in this, in, in this section? Where do we see God's action? See, Paul and Barnabas are preaching a message. It says that God gives witness and affirms their message by sending miracles to accompany the, the task. 
And we see this over and over. Uh, the, 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 these acts of God really uh, reinforce the word of grace that they're sharing. It says, you should listen to these guys. Their message is true. And so God attests to that by giving them miracles that they're able to perform. And it says um, that they do miraculous deeds with their hands. And so in this, what we see in verse eight is we begin to unfold how, what this looks like. And so I wanna just unpack this one briefly uh, because it really is the most clear picture of what it is we're talking about in terms of God's work in affirming kind of the message that they gave. Verse eight says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in Lyconian. Uh, I'm butchering that word. In Lyconian, uh, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, uh, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, when the temple, had, uh, temple was at the entrance, of, I'm sorry, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. Um, so you're meant to see this kind of hilarious unfolding scene of Paul and Barnabas begin speaking the good news. And there's a guy who's crippled, who's laying there on the ground. And it says that he listened to the words of Paul. It doesn't mean that he just listened and sort of heard. What he's saying is, he listened and trusted, he internalized, he, he heard the message of grace, God's grace that Paul was preaching. And Paul looks at him and says he looks intently at him and he saw the man's faith. So what's Paul do? It says in a loud voice, get up. And it says the guy leaped up. Uh, don't you love the picture of that? That this, here in, in, in this town, all these people knew this crippled man had been sitting at the same place for all these years and they knew who he was and they knew that this wasn't a man who just had sprained his ankle and was a little bit injured. This was a man who had been crippled from birth. And so this was a physical, uh, an obvious physical deformity that they'd seen all throughout this time. And as he laid there, Paul says, stand up. And the man leaps up. Wouldn't you imagine that this would take a little bit of, that you'd be a little nervous if you're that dude? Uh, somehow uh, his faith convinced him that it was worth, uh, that he could trust the message of this. So it says he leaps up and just begins walking around. Well, everyone that's watching this is, comes unglued. They're just like, whoa, what just happened? Like this guy that hadn't been able to walk and they've carried him in and they've picked him up and they've, had to, uh, they've given alms to him and they've paid to help him get food because he couldn't support himself, did anything. This dude's dancing around now. Like he's walking around in the city, looking at everything and these people are blown away by what's happened. And so uh, I think maybe in their excitement, we don't know, they probably were multilingual, but they begin speaking in another tongue and they begin going, Zeus, Hermes, they've shown up and done something great. And Paul and Barnabas don't understand what they're saying because they don't speak this language. And so Paul and Barnabas are sitting back going like, whoa, what's happening? And all the people begin running around. They run out and they go get the chief of the temple of Zeus who's outside the city. And the temple of Zeus begins like, oh, let's do some sacrifices in honor of Zeus because Zeus has healed these guys. And eventually Paul and Barnabas get word of what's happened and someone explains to them what's happening and what's Paul do. Then Paul really freaks out. And so Paul says he begins just tearing his clothes off because uh, he's not sure if he, what he says, if, if they're gonna really understand what it says. He says he begins tearing their clothes. Now, that seems really strange for us. It was probably strange in that day, but that was a common sign for a protest that when you were beside yourself in protest, you just ripped your clothes off going, stop, 
What's going on? And so Paul is, is freaking out because they're attributing this miracle that the God of the universe did to the Greek Greco-Roman gods of Zeus and Hermes. And they begin to say, well, Paul must be Zeus. And, or, or, sorry, Barnabas must be Zeus. And Paul, the messenger, the speaker, must be Hermes. And uh, what ha- what's happening here? You see, the people that they're encountering now are, are pagan people in a Greco-Roman world. And they're seeing all the events of what's happening. And they're hearing the message that Paul's preached through the cultural lens of the way they saw the world. In fact, Luke says uh, in, this, uh, or in his writing that, that Paul, it says he looked intently at this man and then he spoke in a loud voice. And in fact, if you look at like the Greco-Roman story of the little G gods, uh, those were two sig- signals in that world and in that literature that something supernatural was about to happen. That if they saw someone who was a little G God that stepped into the world and saw someone looked at him intently and then cried out in a loud voice, it was a signal that something supernatural was gonna come. And so Luke is trying to drop the breadcrumbs and help us understand that these people thought that this was a fulfillment of their false idols that they worshiped. And so they're misattributing the miracle that God did to their false their false gods and their false beliefs. Now, this is a pretty remarkable scene, isn't it? And we see what happens in the way in which Paul then begins to try to break it down for them. If we look at the next verse, um, let's see, if you get to verse 14, it says, when, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd crying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with a, with a like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave them without a witness. He did good by giving you rains in the heavens and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with, fruit, with food and gladness. It says, even with these words, Paul and Barnabas were scarcely able to restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So these people thought Paul and Barnabas were gods in the flesh. And what's Paul say? It's like, dude, I'm just a guy like you. I'm just a man with a nature just like you. Stop worshiping us. Don't you dare sacrifice something to us. We are all together under the one creator God who put the heavens in the skies and put an earth below us and filled it with animals and sends the rains upon you and has given you the seasons that change. He makes, uh, he makes blooms come up in the spring. He puts leaves back on trees. He's the one who manages and cares for all of the things that you experience and you see. He's the one that's given you food that tastes good. He's the one that satisfies the longings of your heart. It begins to point them to the living God. He says, turn away from these what? Turn away from these worthless things, these vain things, and turn to the living God who can actually satisfy the longings and desires of your heart. That's the gospel message, isn't it? Now, it's interesting the way in which Paul approaches this message. Do you remember uh, last week what we looked at in, um, in our Easter message? We talked about Paul's message to a Jewish group of people in Acts 13. In Acts 13, he's talking to a group of people that's a very religious people. Uh, the Jewish people believed the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. And so they knew these. They'd gone to temple. They'd heard those messages. So where does Paul begin his, his argument? How does he begin to build his case in Acts 13? 
he actually goes to the Old Testament because he knows they, they, know, they understand the Old Testament and they trust it. And he begins to, to talk through Abraham and Moses and David and he begins to point them through all the things of the Old Testament and begin to talk to them about the forgiveness of sins. But he doesn't do any of that here in Acts 14. Why? Because this is an entirely pagan group of people that has no experience in the Old Testament. So for him to start there doesn't make any sense. He would have to explain what all those stories were, right? So where does he turn to find common ground, to build an argument, to present the gospel to this group of people? He says, look around you. Do you see the heavens and the skies? Do you see stars at nighttime? Do you see the beauty of the flowers that are coming up in the spring? Do you see the animals and the glory of the things? Do you experience the life that you have and the ability to, to, to consume food and enjoy the, the taste of the things that God has produced? Have you had an apple and tasted its sweetness? Is what he's saying. He's saying, do you think about the, the, the created world? And he begins with the creation. And he says, because you have this common, we have this common experience of creation, you need to understand there is a creator who made all these things. And so rather than jumping into a religious argument, he starts with a natural argument and starts with looking at creation and says, I need to convince this group of people that there's a creator God before I can tell them that he's the one who sent his son Jesus to die for them. And so he builds his argument in a very different way. Friends, I think as we think about our own world, uh, I think this is more the argument we're gonna have to begin to fulfill. Because people, uh, every study show, if you look at all the research, that people don't know their scriptures, that people don't know the stories from the Old Testament, that people don't, uh, they're not familiar with the truth of what the scriptures have to say. And so we're going to have to find common ground. And there's some basic principles in how we can talk to our friends about Christ that we can glean from the book of Acts. And one of those is we have to start with them on their terms. And so when Paul presents the gospel and we see this miracle happens, they're still reading everything through their cultural lens, aren't they? So Paul's saying, well, I need to somehow, one, begin to make them question the cultural lens they're reading things through. And so he asks a really good question. Friends, why are you doing these things? Have you ever had that conversation with someone and, and you begin to talk to them about God and they begin to tell you their beliefs and you maybe turn to them? It's sometimes helpful to turn and say, well, tell me why you believe that to be true. Tell me why it is that you act that way. Tell me why it is that, what, what presuppositions are you making for the way in which you're approaching the world? And uh, nine times out of 10, people say, I don't really know. This is just the way I've always thought. This is the way I've approached it. They, they've not really done the work to think through that. And then you can begin to build a case for, well, have you ever thought that there might be a different way? And that's really what we see that Paul and Barnabas are doing. Why is it that you're doing these things? And he encourages them, says, turn away from those worthless things and turn to the one who made you. Turn to the one who will satisfy you. Turn to the one who will give you life that is truly life. It's interesting in Romans 1, we see the same thing. It says God revealed himself and he calls people to trust him and to have thankful hearts, even if they didn't ever hear the fullness of the gospel and so they continued to pursue those things. It says that, they, uh, that these men were persuaded. Now, here's, I think, the interesting question for us today is, as we in, engage in the world that's somewhat similar to theirs, and as we think about what it would look like to go and engage a group of people who are lost with the truth of God's message, um, do you think we're going to encounter similar things to what they encountered? 
I think it's probably true. These ten things tend to be uh, flowing out normally out of, out of human nature and just the way in which we operate. So here's a question. I want us to turn and look at the rest of the chapter and just ask ourselves a question. What should we do to, to counter the spiritual confusion of the fickle crowds in our world? Uh, because Paul and Barnabas are there and it says they did the best they could to try to sort this out. But even in that, they barely were able to keep these people from, uh, from offering sacrifices to them. And so, friends, when, when the gospel encounters new people, it's almost always messy. I think we just need to say that. There's going to be spiritual confusion as we encounter people because it takes time for people to begin to sort through the cultural lens and sort through what are the false things I'm believing and what are the true things I need to believe. And so as they wrestle with what those things are, it's going to be a messy process. It's almost never a one-to-one jump like you see with the Apostle Paul. And so as we... Um, as we look at the rest of the passage, I want us to think through kind of what does is, what is Christian community look like that fosters healthy disciples? Because that's ultimately what happens here in this passage. Verse 21 says, Now when Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there's several principles that, that I love how simple this is. Um, and yet, you all ever have the experience that you get in a setting like this and you look at it and it looks really simple and then you get out in the world and it starts to get confusing? Uh, the reason is because there's that tug of war that takes place. And so I want us to look at what are the things we're called to do because I think in some ways it is pretty simple when you take away the battle and yet um, it's, it's harder to live out, but it's pretty clear to understand. So when we look at verse 21, what is it, uh, what's the first thing we see that Paul and Barnabas did? It says they made many disciples. Uh, what it means is they went and they preached the good news of Jesus and they had people that trusted Christ and they encouraged them to become followers of Jesus. Do you know our mission statement as a church? We want to make authentic disciples of Jesus who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. Uh, Do you realize, like, we didn't just make that up? Like, we're not just kind of like, woo, what do we want to do today? Uh, But, like, as a church, we actually went back and you look at the scriptures and we look at things like Matthew, where it says, go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples baptizing them of all nations and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. We, we take that command of Christ. We look at what Christ said in Acts 1, where he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we go, oh, we're to be witnesses. We're to be those who share the gospel. We're to be those who make disciples. We look at Acts 14 and what the early church did. And we go, oh, we're to be like Paul and Barnabas. We're to make many disciples just like they did, where we enter into a new place and we encourage people to trust Jesus, become a follower of the way of Jesus. And so that's our mission as a church and what really drives everything we do. So the first thing you see here is that that Paul and Barnabas made many disciples. Uh, Friends, you know that we're continuing the mission of the early church. You understand that's what we're about, that, that this book of Acts didn't really end, that it ends Um, with the continuation of more people going to more places and starting these things called churches that are pockets of people where we raise up and make disciples of Jesus. That's what we're about. That's what we're called to be. And then it kind of unpacks what that looks like. How do we then take those disciples and help them grow and mature as disciples? And so in verse 22, we see the next thing. It says, 
strengthening, and here we see really three aspects. It says strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and telling them that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. Three things um, that we see here. Uh, first is strengthening their inner person. Uh, this is the same verse we looked at at the beginning, that they're strengthening the souls of the disciples. So there's, there's something that is not just giving them external moral religious rules to follow. It isn't just giving them religious church activities to do. Uh, we're not to be about just pulling off church on Sunday. Uh, church is not about a one-hour event that happens in this room and all the work it takes to, to make that happen. But ultimately, church is about making disciples of Jesus. And part of that aspect is strengthening the inner soul of the person at the core of your being. And so there's part of that discipleship process that's building people up from the inside out. You understand that part of your spiritual life is not just to be busy about church stuff, not just to be full of activities for God, doing good for God. Part of church life is not just showing up on Sundays, although that's important and you should do that. But part of the spirit's life is there's, there's a relational thing that happens where your soul is strengthened and built up through a personal relationship with the Lord and you're encouraged and nurtured to trust him at, your, at the deepest part of your being. And as we do that, that leads us to the second aspect of what we see. It says that they were encouraging their faithfulness. Uh, the word there is that they called them to remain, meaning to stand fast in the faith. And it's the faith. It's not just stand fast in feelings of spirituality, but it's to stand fast in the true faith and the, the commands of God. And so this is a, a work of obedience and faithfulness. And it says that, that they're calling them not to drift away, but to stay faithful to Jesus in the ways that he's called us to. Thirdly, and I love number three, because um, any of you ever find it harder to live out numbers one and two than you thought it would be? Any of you find it hard to live with a sense of internal fullness of the life of God always overflowing in you and, and external obedience to always be faithful to all the things Jesus wants you to do? And it sounds so easy on paper. And then I get out on Monday and I drive down the highway and I try to live this out and I go to work and I do the things and I interact with people and I butt heads with people and I see things people post online. And all of a sudden I'm like, I don't feel full inside. I don't really want to obey on the outside. And can you relate? There, that's why I think number three is so essential to the life of the church. You notice what it says. It says um, that, they, um, that, that they were saying to them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What's the point? He's, what they're saying is, friends, life's hard, but it's worth it. They were honest about life. Friends, one of the aspects of the things we're called to be in the church is honest about the difficulties of life that you're gonna face trials, you're gonna face struggles, you're gonna face difficulties and hardships, and you're gonna face tribulations that come your way, but it's through that that eventually the kingdom of God comes in our lives. And that's good news for us, and you need to know that. And so one of the things that we are called, or three of the things that we see in this passage that we're called to do as a church, we're called to help one another strengthen our inner being. We're called to encourage one another to stand fast to the truth of the faith. And we're called to be honest with one another about the hardships of life and that it's gonna be worth it when we finally get through it. I mean, do you wanna go to church like that? That's what Acts 14 is calling us to be. Third, the next thing we see is they appointed elders for them in every church. 
uh, elders are strong servant leaders that Paul and Barnabas knew, hey, I'm going to go from one town to another to another. There needs to be a group of people here who will continue to serve and to encourage you in the things that we just talked about. And so he puts elders here. And I, I want you to know we've got a great group of elders here at our church. We went through the process of affirming elders and David Cole, Cameron Turner, Chris Clark, and myself, and we'd love to add more men to this group as, they, as we see men there elding. We want to make them elders. And so we'd love to see more people added to this number. But the, the goal of an elder is to serve the church to do the things we just talked about. They're the ones that are to, to oversee, to make sure that the whole church is being strengthened, being encouraged, and being reminded that life is hard, but it's worth it because God's going to do good stuff in the end. And so we trust, um, they put elders in place. And then lastly, what we see, it says in verse 33, that they trusted the Lord to the ultimate care of the church. Friends, shepherds are, uh, elders are always under shepherds, but there's an ultimate shepherd. And it says that with prayer and fasting, they handed over the church to the care of the Lord. They entrusted the church to the care of the Lord. That ultimately, that's what we have to do is that we trust God to take care of his church and that's what we're to be about. So friends, as we think about just where we are in terms of our own, our own journey as a church, uh, as we move downtown, um, what do you think it's gonna look like for us? Do you think it's, it might possibly look a little bit like what these guys dealt with? And let me ask a question. Do you remember in verse two how some were poisoning the, their souls against the church, turning them against the brothers? See, what they knew was if they could isolate this group of people from the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the church, that they could cause them to doubt the message of the gospel. And they began to poison their minds and turn them away from it. If you were Satan, isn't that what you would do? If you were Satan and you wanted to undercut the movement of the church, wouldn't you cause people to doubt the people of the church and to, to doubt the value of the church. Friends, let's be a church that sticks. Let's be a church that runs into community. Let's be a church that's constantly there to strengthen one another so that we're strong on the inside. Let's be a church that constantly encourages one another to be faithful to the truth of Christ. Let's be a church that continues, um, continues to remind each other that, that no matter how hard it gets, it's, it's going to be worth it so that no one gets lost along the way. Um, friends, as we think about really just what this looks like for us, um, I want to pray for us. I want to pray really what they do, what they did here in this passage, which is to entrust this church to the Lord. Uh, you know, this church is ultimately his. Uh, he loves us far more than we, than we love us. He loves us far better than we love us. And he's far stronger than we are. Uh, we need to say like Paul, I'm just a man like you. But there is a God who is a creator who loves you and will care for you. So let's go to him in prayer. Sound good? Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, I pray that in the messiness of, your, of ministry, in the messiness of your mission, that in the fickle crowds of our world, that you would make us faithful. Father, would you strengthen us even right now as we talk and as we come to the, the Lord's table and as we sing together, would you strengthen us in the inner person. Make us strong in Christ. Father, would you encourage us in the faith to know that we can trust you? And Father, would you remind us in all of our hardship that it's going to be worth it because the kingdom is coming and we can trust you. Father, would you guard our elders and watch over them and protect them? 
Father, help them to, to be humble men who serve with grace and with humility. Father, the passion of this ministry to advance the gospel, but to also build up the disciples of your church. Father, ultimately, would you, would you care for us? Father, we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance and your direction and your provision and your protection. Father, and Father, just your propulsion into the world with the good news of the gospel. Help us to be bold for Christ. Father, we pray it in his name. Thank you.